There were literally holes in the newspaper, things cut out of the newspaper that related to what happened during the Tulsa Race Massacre in the major newspapers in Oklahoma and in all the archival, like at the University of Tulsa, they were just missing. That was producer and reporter Kala Leah. A few months ago, she won her first DuPont Silver Baton for the podcast Blind Spot Tulsa Burning, produced by WNYC Studios and the History Channel in collaboration with the NPR Oklahoma affiliate KOSU. It's a six-part documentary series that goes back in time 100 years to 1921 to tell the unvarnished, brutal history of the Tulsa Race Massacre in Oklahoma. But it's not just a recount of that history, right, Lisa? Yeah, Abby, it's so much more than that. Kalalia's reporting and writing goes deeper than just the tragic events of 1921. She digs into tough topics like racial violence and generational trauma, which really come alive through descendants of the massacre's survivors and victims and some really rich primary documents. Right. It's quite immersive. Her team really took a creative approach to sound, a mix of journalism and art. Welcome back to the second episode of the On Assignment podcast, season 15 brought to you by Columbia Journalism School. I'm Abby Wright, Executive Director of the Professional Prizes Program, joined today, as always, by my friend and colleague, DuPont Director Lisa R. Cohen. So we talked about this news in our last episode, but I'll say it again because we are just so eager and excited to see a fresh batch of outstanding pieces of journalism in the prizes department here at the J School. As of May 1st, we are officially open for DuPont submissions on our website, dupont.org. That's right, and our deadline is July 1st. So speaking of the awards, let's listen in to a recorded conversation with a recent DuPont winner, Kalalia, about Blind Spot Tulsa Burning, which really won over the hearts and minds of the judges this year. This is an edited version of our conversation with Kalalia. For people who haven't heard about your podcast series, can you give us a thumbnail sketch of what it is and what it's about? So it's a six-part series about the Tulsa Race Massacre, which occurred in 1921 in a community of Greenwood. And during the course of over two days, their community was pretty much looted and burned to the ground. We go back a couple hundred years and touch on the history. By the time we get to the last episode, we are in present day Tulsa, Oklahoma. So uh, this was a favorite of the judges. One of them called it an incredibly intimate look at the Tulsa massacre that expertly conveys not just the historical story and reporting, but the emotional beats of the narrative and the interviews ultimately humanizes the experience of intergenerational trauma in an incredible way. Oh, wow. So beautiful. That's really lovely to hear. Thank you. So um, we have some news. Blind Spot Tulsa Burning has won a 2022 DuPont Award. Oh, my goodness. Are you serious? That is so crazy. Thank you. Wow. What a huge honor. Oh, my goodness. I mean, our team really worked hard on it, but the people that interacted with us who 
talk to us for this series. Like it's their life, you know? And so it just feels really good for them. Like I'm so happy for them. The people of Greenwood, yeah. 100 years ago in Tulsa, Oklahoma, an entire neighborhood was burned to the ground by a massive mob. That neighborhood was Greenwood, a thriving community where thousands of hardworking people lived and worked in the businesses they had built for themselves and their families. And those people, they were Black. I wish that didn't matter so much, but that distinction is important because of the world we live in, because the people who destroyed Greenwood were white. The night of May 31st and into the morning, hundreds of small children hid under their beds while their homes were being looted and set on fire. She said, if you get up under the bed, get up under the bed. Parents, uncles, aunts, and grandparents were shot to death on their porches or while kneeling down, praying for mercy. Bam! I saw you get shot. Others were shot in the streets as they ran from the fire. Everything was burning around us. Emergency services like Tulsa's fire department let Greenwood burn. And burning down the churches. Airplanes, deputized by the local authorities, dropped turpentine bombs from the sky. So I had a conversation with Professor Herb Boyd early on, and he is in Harlem. He writes for the Amsterdam News. And he knew so much about this history. He is married to a woman from Tulsa. He said to me, he remembers when he had learned about it, when he had first got together with her and went to visit her family, that he went to a library and there were literally holes in the newspaper, things cut out of the newspaper that related to what happened during the Tulsa Race Massacre. That just stuck with me. I remember thinking, I have to go look into this. There's hardly anything on record. Where things were documented, very well covered, would be in the black newspapers. But even for a lot of them, they haven't been able to digitize or a lot of things were missing. But in the major newspapers in Oklahoma and in all the archival, like at the University of Tulsa, they were just missing. Yeah. And I can't, I can't explain it. I think that's one of the biggest, more astonishing things. But, you know, we can't be that surprised because we still have issues around redaction. There's this erasure of history that is constantly happening. It's happening now with critical race theory, this debate over whether or not we can teach students about our true history, about what happened and how America came to be. This was very personal and it was so obviously very personal. I mean, from the beginning of the series where you're, you know, talking about how your family was robbed. When I was about seven years old, our house was robbed. It was on Halloween. We just got home from trick-or-treating and my mom, she unlocked the front door and then stopped and took a really big breath. I remember seeing our stuff thrown all over the place. It looked like they took everything, our furniture, stereo equipment, even the television. But most importantly to me, they took the pearl necklace my aunt had given me for my birthday. It was the first time I truly felt wronged. We never found out who robbed us, but whoever it was, they not only took, 
but they gave. They gave me worry and confusion, and I was mad. I wanted my necklace back. That feeling of being violated has stuck with me. It might be the reason why, as an adult, I've always made sure there's a door or some extra layer between the outside world and me. I still lock my bedroom door every single night, even some 40 years later. I wondered about like editorial choices that you made along the way. Were there moments when you're like, okay, this is too much of me. This isn't enough of me. Talk a little bit about what that whole process was like. Oh, Lisa, that's editors. You love editors. I knew editors would fix that. I always have to tell the whole story and get it out. And then I know that the beautiful work of editors that they are going to like take from it the most precious parts and the parts that are powerful. And that was the first thing that I wrote, honestly. Like it was the first thing that just came out of my head and my and my heart is just like thinking about how a trauma can stick with you years later. Something that happened to me as a small child or one of the earliest memories of a traumatic event happening to me and how has that impacted who I am today and how I live and operate in the world and inside and outside of my home. It felt really important to share that. And I, I thought that people would be able to resonate with me telling that kind of story of thinking of something that happened to them as a child. And I really wanted to like start the series off there so people feel where, where we're coming from and where we're going. So I don't know if you knew it when you took the job, but there are certainly so many other projects that happened this year about Tulsa, unsurprisingly because of the anniversary, but a lot of them were video projects. Do you feel like audio has like a different spin or has any advantage because it's such an historical project? I, th I do because um, what I love about audio storytelling and in particular for this series, it happened 100 years ago, right? We, we only know of three known survivors. Greenwood doesn't look anything like it did 100 years ago. Um, so I think with audio, you're able to paint a picture for the listener in the way that I would think that it's even more challenging to do a video or video documentary about what happened because you don't have the visuals. You don't have what Greenwood looked like. You know, you can show a map, but it's not the same of people who can tell you what their grandparents told you about Greenwood. You know, I think there's a certain richness when stories are passed down from one generation to the next, that audio is really able to, to capture. So in addition to that, you guys really brought the town to life, considering it happened 100 years ago. We loved the, hearing the newspaper ads for local businesses, voiced by actors. That was obviously a, a creative choice. How did you decide to use actors' voices? Tell us about that decision. That's for episode two. And I remember just talking about ways that we can bring Greenwood to life and the characters of Greenwood. And, and reading the archives and going through all of the newspapers that I could find during that period, I came across those ads. It was like the sales or business section of the, of the paper. And literally, they just jumped out. Like, I read them and, and I can almost see the people in front of me advertising shoe repair and their restaurant or their juke joint. They just came alive for me. 
going down to William's Furniture Store. Even when you want furniture bad, you want it good. And if you're hungry, North Greenwood Grocery Store has fine staple groceries of all kinds. Or try Ragland and Ellis for waffles and plenty of other good things to suit the most fastidious. In town for a visit, stay at the Stratford, the leading company. When we decided to include those ads, and when I shared them with the team, it just was a given, like, let's use actors to to read and and we really tried to use people um from the Tulsa area I I could just hear them you know on the radio just reading them and how they were written you know very like brief but very clever and colorful and of that period of that time um and, and so it just was a perfect opportunity I love playing with um audio and and various formats um to share, to do storytelling and audio. So it's something that, that at any opportunity um, for any piece that I work on, I'm always like, how, maybe there can be an actor, you know, <laughs> maybe we can have somebody else do it. It's like theater, you know, radio theater. Right. Radio theater. That makes total sense. Um, speaking of, of the voices that you hear, um, generational trauma is such a major theme throughout the series. And there were these voices like John W. Franklin that helped really, because of who he was, demonstrate very viscerally what trauma is and how to, and how it surfaces. And what was the thinking behind that? That was a really wonderful um, discovery or find on the part of our other producer, Alana. Uh, she had came across his manuscript that was on the Smithsonian website. There's very few firsthand written accounts of what happened in the days surrounding the massacre. But a few years ago, a group of Tulsans uncovered an amazing document written by a man named B.C. Franklin. Across town in Greenwood, B.C. Franklin sitting in his boarding room. He can hear the shooting and yelling. I arise, dress, and go to the phone to call the sheriff's office to find out the trouble. I cannot make connection. I feel puzzled. We would soon be in the midst of a great catastrophe if something is not done at once to avert it. No one can reach the sheriff's office, and no one knows where he is. It just was a perfect opportunity. We have somebody who was literally there who wrote the following week about what happened in Greenwood. Why wouldn't we want to use this? Why wouldn't we want to tell it? It's sitting in a library, you know, and it was his words. And it was just a matter of pulling from that manuscript. And originally we were going to take up the entire episode four with his writings of what happened. But it, it was so by episode four, like for me, it hurt. Like literally some days my heart would be hurting. You know, by episode four, it was like, we just cannot tell this again. Like, <laughs> it was horrific reading about people literally being executed, children, elderly people, pets, at livestock, men, women. I mean, all of it. It was, it was horrific. The three men, one lugging a heavy trunk on his shoulder, are all killed as they cross the street. When the old man is hit, no doubt, by a dozen bullets, he falls, sprawling. Blood runs down the street. I turn my head. And I think by episode four, when when we introduced B.C. Franklin, it was like we want to use this, but and, and get the gist of really from his vantage point how he experienced it. But then, 
let's talk to their descendants in the in the second half. And I'm so happy we made that decision to do that. Um, it just leaped out to me of of let's make that link. Let's make that connection. We have somebody who was there, and then we have somebody who is alive now who is related to that person. And let's just span that time. Have them talk about it, you know, that that impact, that's something that they didn't experience, that their ancestor experienced, how it, it currently impacts them today. You talk about how it hurt your heart when you were working on this episode four. What kind of self-care did you guys have on your team? Or what did you learn from that about persevering or, you know, making it through such a tough subject? I mean, for one, I would just allow myself to cry. I cried a lot, like even now just thinking about it. There's so much tape in there where I would have to stop, let the tears flow and then come back. Um, I think that's really important not to hold it in. I did a lot of walking, you know, I would take a break at like four or five o'clock and go for these long walks, sometimes listen to tape and think about the writing. And I, I feel like I just had a community of people, friends and family who were reaching out to me um, during that time, who were close to just check on me and see if I'm eating and hydrating. And that was really important. And all of us, we were doing that um, to one another. It all didn't fall on me. I'm the host, but really, trust me, this was a team effort. You know, one thing that was really important to me and Jenny is to have group edit. So it wasn't, even though each producer like worked on a separate episode, it was important for me to like, that we were always talking about each episode together, whether it was your project or not. And and I think that that was also like a part of us caring for each other. I wonder also whether the fact that this was something that you felt you could do for these people there, you know, as a journalist, I wonder whether that was part of it too. You could say to yourself, this is very hard, but it's for a purpose. There's an end to it. That's going to be helpful. Did that play a part in your self-care as well? Definitely. Definitely. Um, and the end, I have developed a, a loose friendship with some of the people that we have, um, we talked to or we aired in the series and they, you know, they definitely kept me going just to be able to call, call somebody and, and, and talk to them about something that their grandparents said to them or something they heard was, was really important to me. And I can even tell for them after all of these years, they were getting this type of attention and acknowledgement and compassion and concern. You know, I think that it, it really means a lot. So we work out of a journalism school. We love to ask our winners for advice for our current students. What words of wisdom do you have to share with our aspiring journalists here at Columbia? Oh, listen to your gut. Listen to your heart. If that you're going to have questions and there's curiosities, like you're doing this work because you're a curious person by nature. Listen to that, you know, and don't be afraid to attach yourself to the work. Um, that's something that until this project, I've always been afraid to do. Uh, and I'm glad that I was able to do that and I, I felt supported. And then have compassion, be patient. We learn in graduate school to be rigorous and 
thought provoking and ask hard questions, but we don't learn enough about being compassionate and being patient and taking our time, especially with this 24 hour news cycle. Everything is moving so quickly and I'm just not that type of journalist. You know, I really need to sit with things. I really need to take my time. And so I would encourage journalists, budding journalists to, to do that. Really good advice. Thank you so much for talking to us and really congratulations again. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Kalalia for talking to us. I love her advice that you have to allow yourself to cry. You can listen to Blindspot, Tulsa Burning on NPR, WNYC's website, or Spotify. This episode of On Assignment is brought to you with support from Columbia Journalism School and the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund. It was produced by our DuPont Fellow and soon-to-be graduate, Emily Russell, and our sound engineer was A.J. Mangone. To stay in the loop on the DuPont Awards and more On Assignment episodes coming down the pipeline, follow us on Columbia Journalism School's official Twitter, at Columbia Journ. And don't forget, we've already opened up for submissions for the next cycle of the DuPont Awards. Have we mentioned you should enter now? (laughs) Deadline July 1st. Have you done some substantive audio or video reporting over the last year? Submit your work for a 2023 DuPont Award. Find out more information at dupont.org. And once more, that deadline is July 1. We look forward to seeing all the new submissions roll in and to greeting you, our listener, in our next On Assignment podcast, coming soon. Until next time. Mm